Good morning, saints. How's everybody? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone that's here today, everyone that's listening, everyone that will be impacted this morning by your presence, by your word, by your truth. Father, we invite the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you to just be poured out upon us. We thank you for the saints that are here. We thank you for the angels. We thank you for just surrounding us with your love, with your glory, with your power, and with your favor. And we give you thanks today for all you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk uh, this morning, obviously, probably the last message I'll do on uh, prayer for a while. But I want to uh, just reiterate and kind of come at it from a different angle. I've been getting some testimonies from people who have been trying it out and seeing some really incredible results. One person uh, actually, now this is not the norm necessarily. Maybe it should become our new norm. Uh, so, you know, I want to manage everybody's expectations. Not like it's really my job, but I just try to be responsible in the way I share. Uh, but we had somebody that literally had money just appear in one of their bank accounts because um, they had some bills that they had to pay and whatever. And they were uh, working this out, this whole idea of getting the feeling that the prayer had already been answered. And so several hundred dollars showed up in this person's account, plus one of their bills was already paid that hadn't been paid, uh, showed paid. So anyway, uh, that's what we're talking about. Those are the kind of results that we're talking about uh, and moving into those kinds of areas and dimensions. One of the challenges that we have as believers is we think we're not supposed to have stuff. <laughs> we think we're not. I mean, it's, it really is. If you think about it, religion will drive you crazy. It really will. It's actually, it's actually been substantiated through uh, brain science and research. Did you know that? I think I've shared that with you before. But uh, it, it absolutely will drive you crazy. <clears throat> proven. It will shrink your hippocampus. It will increase uh, your chances for uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. It will cause your limbic system to swell. It will at times cause your, mind, your, your neuron, neurons and all that wiring up there to bypass the frontal lobe, which is where all your better judgment comes from. In fact, one researcher, Dr. Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, demonstrated that believing in an angry God, now I want to be specific when we're talking about religion, what we're talking about, we're not talking about something that's healthy, but we're talking about believing in an angry God, a God that's against you, and also focusing on your weaknesses, focusing on your problems, focusing on your sins, um, causes the limbic system to swell. And if you do it for too long, it actually does as much, if not more, brain damage than using alcohol and drugs over a period of time. So we have a real problem. If Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, but what we're doing to us is making us dumber, more forgetful, and killing us. So really... How many older crowd? So how many remember the 80s, the whole, you know, say no to drugs thing? And they had the fry in the egg. You know, this is your this is your brain, the egg. Remember, they crack it. This is your brain on drugs and it's frying. How many remember that? So you just think about that next time you get focused too much on your weaknesses or you hear angry preaching. 
See, I've just decided I won't do angry preaching anymore. I, I won't listen to it. I'll get up and leave because it's bad for my health. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so, but, you know, for some people, especially if you grew up in an abusive background, it feels like love and it feels like home. So we shout and say amen. I'm just saying. It's just true. All right. I'll get off that soapbox. My whole point was our problem is believers. We think that we're not supposed to have stuff. <laughs> we think we're not supposed to have desires. We think that it's evil if we have money or if we have nice things or if we dream about a better day. And so we're less effective oftentimes than other people. But here's why it drives us crazy. Because we believe God created everything. I mean, basic Christology from John's Gospel, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. So if all things were made by Him and through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made, then what's your problem? What's your problem with enjoying the things that God has provided and that God has made? See, we really got to get set free from this stuff, because if we don't get set free from this stuff, we'll continue to be ineffective. Are you all breathing? Why am I doing this? Because the first step to answered prayer and the lost mode of prayer and to following the teachings of Jesus is whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you have received them and you shall have them. So if you are not free to freely desire in your heart, if you're not playful with it, if you're not accepting of it, if you're not loving and kind and compassionate with yourself in it, you can't even take the first step towards this thing. If you're sitting there saying, well, I don't know if God wants me to have more money. I don't know if God wants me to have uh, better relationships. I don't know if God wants me to be healthy. Some people, uh, you know, teach. I was so funny just thinking about this in the last 24 hours. You know, there's a passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews. And I'm all over the place. I apologize. I'll get into my message in a minute and follow my slides. But there's a passage in the book of Hebrews that talks about the discipline of the Lord. Anybody familiar with it? It says, uh, you know, whom God loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And no chastening seems pleasant at the time, but afterwards it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. And we've all been chastised as sons that if we're without chastisement or discipline, then we're, uh, we say it nice, we're illegitimate, but originally it was, we're bastards. We're not real sons. It's in the Bible. Now, our problem is we have to make sense of it. (laughs) And so to make sense of it, we have reference points for what we think discipline and punishment is like or what it's supposed to be. Right? And so we have a tendency to think that God is orchestrating circumstances in order to teach us something. That's kind of a common belief, isn't it, out there? Something bad happens. What is God trying to teach me? What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Maybe I'm being disciplined. And so there, kind of the whole concept of God is if something bad happens, I have to accept that as discipline from the Lord because certainly I'm doing something wrong. Right? And that's kind of the model and the framework. Let me offer a different way to look at it. Please understand that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a community. Everything makes sense better when it's in context. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a community that is, that is seriously considering abandoning their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. 
And the reason they're doing that is because they're getting all kinds of persecution and tribulation and suffering. And so nowhere in that letter does he write to them and say, you should receive this persecution and suffering as the chastisement of the Lord. Because it's not teaching them to do anything. It's tempting them to deny their faith in Jesus. It's tempting them to walk away from Jesus as the Messiah. But he's very hard on them in that letter. He tells them things like, if you walk away from the Messiah, then there's going to be nothing but burning judgment and, and, and things that will be there for you. Primarily, I don't believe he's thinking necessarily in an eternal context. I think he's writing before the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the J- Jerusalem that Jesus had prophesied in 70 AD and which historians tell us that it was only the Jewish Christians who escaped Jerusalem and did not suffer a horrible fate at the hands of the Romans because they believed what Jesus had prophesied about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years earlier. But had they given up their faith in Messiah and had they uh, rebonded to this Jewish community that was about to be scattered, then when Rome came, literally their city was going to be burned and all this stuff was going to happen. So he's writing to them with a sense of urgency, saying, you're going through a hard time. He's trying to encourage them and saying, don't give up on your faith in Messiah. So why is he talking about discipline at the end? Could it be that his letter is the discipline and the correction that they're needing to receive? Could it be that the author is saying, I know you don't like what I'm saying, and I know it's not pleasant at the moment... But if you are a son, you'll receive what I have to say. Because every, every son that God receives, God corrects, and God's using my words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to bring correction into your life. I don't know. Call me crazy. I just think, you can't prove that that ain't what he's talking about. I mean, you can't prove to me that whatever hardship I went to was, you know orchestrated in heaven to teach me something. And I don't even know, most people that say that, they don't even know what lesson they're supposed to learn. Well, God's disciplined me in trying to teach me something. And I always want to ask, what have you been doing? (laughs) Because most times, see, I pastor people. I don't just preach to them and then leave. (laughs) So you kind of do life with people. And it's like, you know, What's going on? Anyway, not my message. Let's get on to my message. Let's talk about the technology. Here's what I want to talk about. The technology of prayer. I want you to think about what we're talking about, the lost mode of prayer, as a technology of prayer. So technology, a manner, here's the definition for it. It is a manner of accomplishing a task using technical processes, methods, or knowledge. So here's what I believe, that Jesus gave us that really, I'd step back even further and I'd say God created us as his image bearers. And in a modern perspective, I think it's safe to say that God has created us as his technology to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. God could do anything without us, but he's relational. <laughs> Perhaps the greatest theological statement that we can make as Christians is that God is love. That's why in a Christian understanding of God, you have to have a trinity. 
Because you cannot have love without a lover and a receiver. You cannot have love without a giver and a receiver. So it's impossible for God to be love if there's not a relationship. So therefore, it necessitates belief in at least a trinity. Are you breathing? But God wanted to expand that. God wanted to open, if you will, his his circle of love. And he wanted to include sons and daughters. And we get to be that. And, And, you know, it's like I feel like part of my mission is to just get Christians quit beating up on themselves. And quit feeling bad about themselves and quit worrying about all the stuff that they may or may not be doing right or wrong. Because really, this thing is a whole lot bigger than that. And God has an interest in you. And I believe that we are God's technology for manifesting the future. I really believe that's what the church is supposed to be. I believe that's what we're supposed to be as believers. I don't think necessarily that life is this big moral test and we have to stand our ground until we prove this test and kind of white knuckle it and suffer for Jesus till we can get to the sweet by and by and sing and shout the victory. I think that God is interested in right now raising up a company of people who under understand the technology, who understand the manner of accomplishing the task of creating the future and have revelation about the technical processes, the knowledge and the methods that are necessary for us as sons and daughters of God to cooperate with the spirit and to bring heaven and earth together, to bring eternity and time together and to manifest a new creation, to manifest a new future. I don't Oh, this is going to blow your mind, but I'm not so sure that the new Jerusalem is some cube floating around in outer space somewhere. I think the new Jerusalem is a metaphor for that which has the glory of God. When he, when the rifts, when all of the rifts between heaven and earth have been healed, when all of the worlds have been repaired. And so I believe that the New Jerusalem, rather than being something dimensionally that is coming from outer space somewhere into our earth, I believe it is something that is being born in the womb of the sons and the daughters of God, and that it's being manifested out of heaven by those who are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, but are also walking upon the earth and know how to bring through processes, through technologies, through methods, through knowledge, know how to bring the kingdom of heaven into the earth to change the earth and to bring life and to bring glory and to bring liberty and to bring freedom and to bring joy. Now, I might be crazy, but that's a whole lot more inspiring than admit it and quit it. Jesus somehow was able to inspire people when they were at the top of the game. The modern church only knows how to pick people up when they're at the bottom of their game. I'm not beat up enough yet that I need God. I'm not down and out enough yet that I need somebody to pick me up. I'm not hurting bad enough that I need to go to the healing conference. And yet Jesus somehow was able to take people that had the height of what the world had to offer and still inspire them to give it up. That's the whole story of the Apostle Paul. He was not a down and outer. He was very much an up and comer. 
And he was so inspired by a vision of the kingdom and so inspired by a vision of Jesus that he said, everything that I gained coming up is but really, he said, it's but dung to me. I count it like dung and I count it at loss compared to the excellency of the glory of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. So forgetting those things that are behind me, he's not talking about his mistakes. He's not talking about his sins. He's not talking about uh, that person that hurt him. He's not talking about leaving your painful past in the past. He's saying everything I gained in my life, forgetting those things that are behind me, everything I gained, I counted loss. Not everything I lost did I lose. Everything I gained, I counted loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So the game has to be a whole lot bigger than what we think. And so what if part of the discipleship process is learning how to be a technology for heaven to, mani- to change things in the earth, to cause mountains to move, to cause bondages on people that are down and out to be broken, that causes sicknesses to be healed, that causes miracles to take place, that causes heaven to invade earth, that improves the quality of life not only for yourself but for other people. That, that, that isn't thinking that every desire that comes is somehow born of the devil. Because if you can't desire, you can't do this. God has given us a workshop in our hearts. What do you do in a workshop? You fashion stuff, you create stuff, you make stuff. And so it has to start here. And so what, what I believe, what I really believe that God's trying to show us is that you don't work on life out here. You work on life in here. And out here, you may have all kinds of limitations. Government could be, programs could be limiting you. Society perceptions of you could be limiting you. Uh, just natural laws, if it's something that does with health and healing, could be limiting you. Other people and their goofy will could be limiting you. But in, but your heart, if you'll allow it to, your heart can soar. Your heart can go anywhere. Your heart, your heart doesn't understand the boundaries that society or life or time and space or whatever has created for you. And so really, I mean, you know, if you think about it, think about the stories of the patriarchs. God hung out with the dreamers. You know, God hung out with a guy named Abraham who when he's 99 years old and past childbearing, has a dream to be the father of many nations. Joseph had a dream that his other brothers were going to bow down to him and he was going to be a great ruler. God put that there. His half-brothers wanted to chastise him for it. There's a lesson in that. You share your dream with the wrong with your half brothers, and they want to kill you, and tell you that can't be God, and put you in some kind of religious bondage. But God put that inside him, and it was his declaring the dream that initiated the process that would take him into it. Because it was when he told it to his brothers that they sold him into Egypt. All right. Because actually, the dream was much bigger. The stars bowing down to him was much bigger than just his brothers. It was the powers of the heavens where God would set him over Egypt 
and the whole world would come to Joseph. Not just his siblings. So the dream was even more expansive than what he could imagine. But until he talked, until he embraced it, until he incubated it, until he talked about it, it couldn't get initiated. See, if we're disconnected from our desires, if we're disconnected from the future in our own hearts, then we're just kind of floating like fragments out here, and we feel powerless, and we're praying that God, who is all-powerful, will somehow orchestrate events to make things work for us. Instead of realizing that it's born from within, in communion with God, yes, in fellowship with God, yes, I'm taking that for granted, right? And then creating it in your imagination. So, so your heart is the workshop in which your dreams find wings, in which your, your desires can begin to soar. And, and, and really, you can try out different outcomes without commitment. So one of the ways that... How many came out of the Word of Faith movement? Let me just see your hands. Word of Faith movement. Okay, one of the ways they put us in bondage was you couldn't talk about life. They actually, they fragmented you because you couldn't talk about what was really going on because just saying it was going to create it. Am I right? So if you were sick, you weren't sick, you were taking a healing. You weren't taking a cold, you were taking a healing. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. And how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but you went to churches where people, if they sprained their ankle or something, you didn't see them for six weeks because they didn't want to show up. Cause... I remember hearing Pastor Michael Pitts and... Um, uh, wherever he is in Ohio, Toledo, I think. I remember hearing him tell a story that he was in a church preaching and, and there was an anointing there for miracles and, and uh, he, he called people up for you know healing and nobody would come up. And he said he looked at the pastor, he's like, what's the problem here? You know, I thought this was a church that believed in healing. He said, well, we, the pastor said, well, we do, but nobody wants to confess that they're sick. So he said, okay, I'll confess it for him. You with a neck brace, come up here. You over here on oxygen, get up here. <laughs> but it's because we don't understand how that, because we, we, we had one, they, they have one piece, you know, words are effective. Words have influence and power, whatever. But it's just one part of the, the thing. It's not enough to manifest something. Jesus did not say, whatever you say, you're, you're going to get. I mean, he did, but he, he qualifies it when he says, whatsoever things you desire. So it's not just the saying, but it's the desire. In another place, in John 15, verse 7, he says, ask whatever you will. And the word will there means whatever you choose with solid intent. Or whatever you sell out for. So if I sit here and say, you know, um, like one of the things I said, you know, you got to get all the death language out of your language. So if, if Trent were to say something funny to me and I said, oh, you're killing me. So, oh, you ought not say that. That's a bad confession. Am I ta- I'm talking to seven people in here. I know the rest of you are like, what kind of crazy thing was that? Right. So, but but see, I don't intend to die. I don't desire to die. My intention is to communicate with my friend. All right. I'll get off that. But do, do you see? So this thing is very involved. We, we, some Christians pray like people who play roulette. 
or craps or whatever. You know, we're not sure what we're going to get. Let's just throw something out there. It's like throwing the ball on the roulette table. Let's hope it lands on the right number. Am I offending you? Come on, Jesus. Here we go. Let's get on a different prayer list. I'm just saying that's about how much intent and concentration and focus and stuff that's happening. And you're not going to get results like that. You're not going to get results like that. It has to start with desire and then it has to be backed by sold out intention. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where it gets tricky. Because, you know, there are a lot of people, they're not committed to being healed. I'll say that again. There are a lot of people who are sick, but they're not committed to being healed. There's a lot of people messed up in their mind, but they're not committed to getting better. A lot of people in codependent relationships that want a better relationship, but they're not committed to changing the relationship. Why? Because they're getting what we call secondary benefits off of whatever they're doing. And the secondary benefits are actually more important than being well. So, for example, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, this is a hypothetical person. All right. So at the end, we're going to run the thing like they run at the end of every movie. Anybody that this resembles, this is a fictitious account. If this resembles anybody, it's totally coincidental. You see that thing at the end of the movies? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, this is that. Got it? What do you say? This is that. Just look at somebody say, he ain't talking about you. So let's just say... Jimmy, I don't see Jimmy in here. I'm not talking, I'm just pulling the name out of the air. But when you use names, anyway. Jimmy, uh, the only time, Jimmy had to work really hard, except when he was sick, growing up. And the only time he really got nurture or attention, or so he felt, or so he believed, from his mom growing up or whatever, was when he was sick. And he found out he didn't have to go to school. If he'd stay sick. And Jimmy hated school. So Jimmy used to pray that he would wake up with a fever so that he didn't have to go to school. Are you, are you tracking with me? You see how this works? And then Jimmy's body grows up. Jimmy physically becomes a man. But mentally and emotionally... He's learned how to get his needs met for nurture, for attention, for uh, relaxation, rest, you name it. And it's all connected to being sick. So what happens? Jimmy grows up. Jimmy becomes sick. Jimmy becomes sick. He doesn't have to work as hard. He can get on disability. I don't know. Jimmy uh, has a, finds a wife like his mom who nurtures him. When he's sick. And then Jimmy gets in the healing line. Because everybody, everybody wants Jimmy sick. See, one of the best things I ever learned as a pastor, never want victory for somebody more than they want it for themselves. Because the moment you want victory or change for somebody more than they want it for themselves is the moment you're intruding upon their secondary benefits and messing with their life in a way that it's not your right to mess with. 
that part of learning how to walk in the kingdom is learning how to relate to people with honor. And part of relating to people with honor is I will honor you on your life's journey and support you in inheriting, reaping whatever whirlwind you're going to reap because you sowed the wind. So if you choose to stay dysfunctional, I will honor you in your choice to stay dysfunctional, but I don't necessarily have to participate with your dysfunction. But if I'm praying, you got to be careful, because if you're praying, trying to get God to change Jimmy to get him better, you're actually sidestepping into witchcraft. Because you're trying to control Jimmy through supernatural means in order for Jimmy to meet what you think Jimmy ought to be. It's one of the reasons we have meetings. Everybody, you know, everybody prophesied for years, decades. There's going to be meetings. We're going to stand up and the glory of God's going to come and everybody's going to be healed. Nope. I've been pastoring too long. You could say that's unbelief. You can say whatever you want to say about me. I've been pastor. I've been at this game too long. And I know there are way too many people that get secondary benefits off of being sick. And God loves them enough that if... Attention is more important than physical comfort. He will allow you to get your need for attention met because that's what you really want. All right, let me bring it down to where you live. All right. How many of you did a New Year's? Okay, don't raise your hand, but New Year's resolution. I want to get, I want to lose weight. I want to lose weight, but man, I love dessert. I love dessert. And when that dessert is there, I forget about the number on the scale. I forget about my New Year's resolution. I forget about all the benefits of whatever being healthy. I forget about my high blood pressure. I forget about my diabetes. Whatever the case may be, I'm down with that dessert. And then the next day I get up and I step on the scale and it says, excuse me, one at a time, please. And I say, how did this happen? How did this happen? (laughs) See, intention is not that easy. Settling 100% congruent intention. I knew a person who who thought they could use this stuff to win the, the lotto. And so they would sit there and focus on the numbers. And why not, you know? I mean, some of you all judge them, but I'm, I'm, you know, why not? I love this. This is what I'm talking about, a workshop. This is this person's workshop. Listen to me. Don't judge this person. Listen to me. They began to, in their imagination, think, what would it be like to win Powerball? And initially, you think, man, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And, of course, this person, believer, so they're going to take care of everybody else first. Because that's how we do it in our head so we don't feel guilty. Because the way we were taught. So I'm going to tithe to the church, be able to buy a new building. Um, I'm going to uh, uh, pay off people's stuff. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to send money to missions. Okay, now what am I going to do? I'm going to buy a house in Hawaii. I'm going <laughs> to... But see what's happening. This person's this, this workshop, right? 
And then the person would sit there and meditate on those balls falling out or whatever and showing up the numbers that this person had, had picked. Go buy the ticket and everything. And a few weeks go by, and this person, this is what's so great. This is why getting discouraged is such a killer. A few weeks, maybe months goes by, and this person doesn't get discouraged. But you know what this person starts thinking about? All the relationships that are going to change when you come into that kind of money. All the people that are going to be beaten on your door. All the people that are going to be envious. The responsibility, listen to this, particularly as it relates to ministry, the responsibility of becoming a kingmaker. Because if I have a million bucks and I go to Kenya, anywhere really, anywhere, if you have enough money, you can hire image consultants. You can hire people to go through your messages and make sure you don't offend anybody. This is how church, big church, this is how mega church is done in America, by the way. One of the real big mega churches, don't think who it is because you don't know who, it's not who you think it is. Although they may be doing this too. One of the guys, and then we franchise churches. Because one of the guys uh, went and hired a bunch of Hollywood people. Because in Hollywood, they know how long they can keep you on the edge of something. They take you on an emotional experience in a movie that is very scientific. They have studied. They know how long they can keep you in an intense state before you need some plucky comic relief to break it off. Exactly how many minutes. You can have this many minutes of intense gore and violence or whatever, and you need something over here to kind of break it with some humor, or you need something over here, or you can keep them about this long, but if you don't get into the plot line, you're going to lose them. All of that is down to the minute science. So this guy had a great idea. He said, I'm going to hire these people to craft my messages for me so that when people come to my church, they have a great emotional high and experience when I'm talking. I think he was even smarter. Because he said, because then, and it worked, it worked. People just started flooding into the church. Oh, I feel so good. I feel so inspired when I leave, yada, yada, yada. So then he took it one step further and he said, you know what I can do? I can market this. I've done the research. I've done the work. I can market this to other churches. So here's what I'll do. All these churches that bought my books on church growth, I'm going to offer to sell them my messages for a year so they can reproduce what I'm doing and other people can have the same experience. And so what you end up with really is a Christian movie house on Sunday morning opening movie houses all over the United States. How did I get off on that? What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So back to my person who's working on the lotto. Hi, it's a good thing I'm going on sabbatical. <laughs> so, um, back to this person who's doing the lotto, they start thinking, I'm, I'm going to have the responsibility of being a kingmaker by the money that I give to these ministries. And pretty soon, this person actually decided, congruently settled in their heart, I want nothing to do with winning the Powerball.
So everybody jokes, oh, I'm going to do this, and oh, I'm praying, and oh, do you want to buy a Powerball? So now, do you want to buy a Powerball ticket? I'm assuming with this person. No. Why? Because it would not, because that person really did not desire that. It's not what they desired. Now, you might be different. You might be to- wired totally differently, and that's okay. But do you see how this thing works? Gang, that's actually prayer. See, we don't get results because we just think we want something, and it's like we throw the ball up on the roulette table, and, and every once in a while you hit one, and you say, oh, praise God, God answered my prayer. But the reality is, do you really 100% want this? That's the first question you have to answer. So you have this workshop in your imagination where you can go and play all these different future scenarios and try them on and see how they fit before you even commit to saying the prayer. And so if you need healing, what are the secondary benefits to you being sick? Can you be honest with yourself? And listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting attention. There's nothing wrong with wanting nurture. There's nothing wrong with wanting a break from work. All those are wonderful and good things for you to have. But you need to be invited to see that your strategy for meeting those needs is below your privileges as a child of God. Are you breathing? Does that make sense? So what if I can get my need for intention and what if I can find other strategies for getting these secondary benefits without the sickness? See, you've got to work through that stuff in your heart before you can manifest health and healing. And then you've got to be committed with intention. I will have this outcome in my life. Jesus said in John 15:7, whatever you will, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you will will happen. See, we want to pray, Lord, whatever you will. But Jesus said, no, whatever you intend. So now I have to work through intention. And I have to be able to stand strong on my desire so that I don't take the easy way out while I'm in the process. Perfect example, we told you about how when we adopted our, our uh, boys, and when we got Elijah, we were just sharing this, just I think, a couple nights ago with somebody. At one point, we could have protected our own hearts and withdrawn from the process because it was very emotionally risky for us to do what we were doing. That's all right. Sorry, never understands me. <laughs> Sorry, just went off. He said, I'm not sure what you said there. <laughs> Even when I'm preaching, sorry, you can't understand me. <laughs> so we could have taken that easy way out, but we had to be determined. This, we are, we are committed to this, this is what we want, and this is what we're going to have. Therefore, and part of the process is acting like you have it before it happens. So we're playing this scenario where we're lining up everything inside us like we're never going to lose this kid. 
He's always going to be with us because the adoption is going to go through. And we're putting that on, if you will, out here. But at the same time, the option is we could retreat, find another resource, tell them we can't do this. I mean, you've got lots of options. Lick our wounds and go cry about how it just wasn't the will of God. So you had to make a choice. And so when your social worker is looking at you crying and saying, when you lose this child, we will connect you with grief counselors. And you have the choice. You have to have some power of intention. And I remember telling a couple of social workers, they're, they're, he's in such a perfect home. We know he'd be great for you, but we have to do this. And I'm so sorry. And be able to look at him congruently and smile and say, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. We're people of faith. Instead of saying, oh, this is terrible, I know. That takes will power. It takes willpower. See, you're God's technology. You're God's technology. And God, God wants to develop you. If everything's just the will of God, there's no development of your soul. You don't have to think about strategies and develop your intellect. You don't have to go through hard times where you stand strong in the midst of adversity and develop your will. You don't have to develop your imagination so that you can imagine an, account, an outcome in detail. You don't have to work with your feelings so that you can manifest the feeling that you have something before it shows up. See, these are the technologies of prayer, and it requires development. So sometimes, sometimes when I don't want to go to the gym, I tell myself, by, I'm not, I am not primarily... I'm past trying to strengthen my body at the gym. When I go to the gym, it's all about me strengthening my will. I will do this. And every time I make the decision and I stick to it, I'm developing my will. But I'm not doing it so that I'm physically healthy. That's a, that's a secondary benefit. I'm doing it because I know the days are going to come when I have to deal with a mountain and I have to be able to have the willpower to stand up to my mountain and say, mountain, you will move. And even when everything around me is screaming, no, it won't move. I have developed my will to the point that I can do this. That's what God requires of us. That's why it's easier. That's why we end up playing roulette in the prayer room. I hope that's not offensive to you. It's just a metaphor. Are you with me? You breathing? All right, let me give you some steps. You ready? Uh, We're going to get past that. We've covered that already. First thing, you've got to have focus. What are you focusing on? What are you focusing on? Are you focusing on the problem Or are you focusing on the answer? Because Jesus said, whatever you desire when you pray, believe that you have received. Prayer is not telling God your problems. And Jesus said this. He said, your father knows what you need before you ask. So he knows the problem better than you do. 
But because, because of this inner technology of the heart, if you're focused on the problem, what signal are you sending to creation? What signal are you sending to the universe out of your status as a king anointed by God? You're saying, give me more problem. Because <laughs> that's where your focus is. I want to lo- Some people don't lose weight because they want to lose weight. If I say, I want to lose weight, where is my focus? On the weight. So what am I actually focusing on? Getting heavier. I mean, it sounds silly. But if my focus is on, I want to get healthier. I want to be thinner. It changes the image in your mind. I want to quit smoking. Good luck with that. Go get a patch. Whatever. That's not going to be strong enough. I remember one of the people that I learned from some of this stuff was walking, walking by a liquor store. And this guy, he starts conversation with the guy going to the liquor store and he says, man, I just want to quit drinking. I want, to, I want to know what it takes to quit drinking. That's what he said. I want to know what it takes to quit drinking. And the guy looked at him and said, you're asking yourself the wrong question. The right question to ask yourself is what would you be doing with your time instead of drinking? See, I want to quit drinking leaves you locked into your current reality with everything that you don't like. What would you do instead invites you to step out of the box of your current reality and begin to imagine an entirely new future which engages the creative forces inside you that God placed inside you to create a new future. Am I boring you? Does it make sense? So you're focusing on what you desire. You're focusing on the change. You're focusing on what will be, not what won't be. What will you be doing when you're healthy? Not, well, I won't be in bed anymore or whatever. Make sense? Second part is now, so now that you've focused, now again, I told those stories, you've worked through the intention part of it. You've worked through all the secondary benefits. You're committed to having this. See, this is a lot more, this takes a lot more than just, okay, in Jesus' name. Maybe if I plead the blood more. I just, you all right? What, what is it that I intend to have? Now, this is where you get blocked. This is where you can get blocked up because, well, that'll never happen. That's where all the serious Well, that'll never happen. I can't have that. That won't work. That won't... Just stay in here where all things are possible in your imagination, right? And settle the issue. What do I really want? Focus on what you want. You've, you've, you've worked through the intent part of it. So now what you do is you begin to create the feeling as though you already have it. What's it going to feel like when this is no longer a problem for you? What's it going to feel like when you have the thing that you've been desiring? And you create that feeling. See how you're getting your whole heart involved in this? All right.
I hope this helps. And then last, be thankful. Give thanks. Now, here's where we can get hung up, too, because you can almost... All right. Can I give you one more principle? Just one more? That messes us up. I do this. This will go with what I said in the first service. The Garden of Eden story really wasn't written by ancient people to tell you and I that we did not come from monkeys. It really wasn't. And it wasn't written... The Cain and Abel story weren't written so we could sit there and wonder, I wonder who Cain's wife was. These were stories designed to give you a map to understand how the kingdom of heaven works. So watch this. After God makes Adam, he makes him on the sixth day, and there are six days for work, which means Adam's first day of existence was the seventh day, which is a day of rest. And our Bibles say God placed Adam in the garden, but in the original Hebrew it says God rested Adam in the garden and told him to guard it and keep it and said everything here will produce for you and you get to choose what you get to eat from. Right? When Adam falls, where does he go? He leaves the garden, and what what happens now? Through the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to force the ground to produce for you. So in Eden, from a place of rest, it just works. Outside of Eden, it doesn't just work anymore. You have to force it. You have to force creation to respond to your desires. Are you breathing? So... Eden is the place where it works. Outside Eden is the place where it doesn't work. Got it? Let's say it this way. Eden is the place of playful work. Delightful work. The word Eden means delight. Eden is a place of delightful work. Because he had to do something. Restful work. Outside Eden is a place of force and struggle and grinding and demanding. You, you won't work miracles over here. And you won't get answered prayer. And this mode of prayer that I'm teaching doesn't work outside the garden. So if you want it too much and you try to force it, you just short-circuited the process. If you have to have it, then something's wrong that you're not content with where you already are. And whatever you think you're going to fix out here isn't going to fix what's in here. If I can just improve this, then I can feel better. If I can just improve this, then I can be content. If I can just improve this. So you're working at it from that angle. Are are you breathing? So this is the place, when we're talking about giving thanks and believing that you've already received, it's the place of being at rest. It's the place of playful delight. And so it's the place where you hold on to your desire and you hold on to the promise of God loosely with a tight... Let me say it this way. This is a place where you hold on to the promise tightly with an open hand.
that make sense? It's like, um, yeah, thanks, Kevin. At least somebody gets me. It's a place where I can, I'm giving thanks, I'm worshiping the Lord, but my entire existence doesn't depend on whether or not this manifests. Because the moment my entire existence and happiness and everything depends on whether or not this manifests, it's not going to work. So focus. Everybody say focus. I know I've thrown a lot of information at you today. I'm sorry. Everybody say focus. <laughs> Everybody say create the feeling as though you already have it. And then the third thing, hashtag, be thankful. <laughs> Give thanks. Give thanks. And that's why I put that I get to choose. Because if I start giving thanks too much for the outcome, I might start working too hard. But if I can give thanks for the process, if I can give thanks for the ability to choose a new future, it's so much more empowering. So, Lord, thank you that I get to choose this reality. This is what I'm choosing. This is what I want. This is what I'm desiring. This is what it's going to feel like when I have it. And I'm thankful that I get to choose it. And I'm putting it out there. And then I'm just waiting for things to align, for synchronicities to happen, for serendipitous events to take place in my life where I stumble upon the very thing that I wanted that I had been creating, but I didn't figure out how to get it by working this system out here. See, if I got to figure out how to get what I want by working this system out here, I want a better job, so I got to figure out how do I get my resume together and how do I, who do I need to contact and who do you know, and man, Pueblo just sucks. There's no opportunity here and it's just horrible, but maybe if I, maybe if I get to know this person, I, let me just tell you one more story. Last story, I promise. Last story. I, when we first got married, the only job I could get was working retail. And I did not like it. I didn't like working the holiday season. I didn't like the hours. It was keeping me out of church. And there was so much pressure to sell that I found myself compromising my integrity, lying, in order to get my sales up so that I could get the pressure off me so that I was better off. And I didn't like that either. And so I was able to recognize this is not a good place for me to be. And I didn't have a degree. I didn't have job skills. I didn't have one. And so I sat down and I wrote out, what do I want? I want a nine to five job. I want to make this amount of money. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough. I figured out how much I need to make. I want to make this. And I want to be able to have room there for advancement. And I didn't know if there was any job like that that existed for me anywhere in Pueblo. But I'm working it and I'm believing I received it. And this guy walks in to uh, Montgomery Wards, where I was working. And he, how do I say this? He's attracted to, I'm trying to work on my decorum. He's attracted to one of, the, one of my coworkers. And so he's flirting with her a lot and stuff. And he's really trying to play it like he's a big shot at this company that was here in town. And I, I started thinking about it. I thought, man, that company might be a good fit. And so this is what I got this idea. I said, we're going to find out what kind of big shot he is. So and I said, hey, you work at such a... And I did it in front of her. <laughs> it's wisdom. <laughs> I'm working it. He's working it. I'm working it. 
hey, you work here. You must be really important there, huh? I've been wanting to get out of this place, and would there be any job openings? What if I brought you my resume? You think you could put it in? Oh, yeah, I know the perfect place. This job would be perfect for you. It was the perfect job. It was 9 to 5. It was uh, the money that I needed. It was perfect. So I gave him my resume because I thought that's how you do it. It's not what you know. It's who you know. You've got to get past the system. So now I know somebody, and he didn't care about me, but he cares about her, and I work with her, so this is good. <laughs> I mean, I got this thing figured out. So I give him the resume, and I end up getting a call for an interview. I go to the interview, and I do the interview, and they say, how much do you need? And, and it was horrible. I was trying to get ready for the interview, and somebody decided to drive by my house and bash in my car windows the day of my interview. So I'm having, instead of spending my time focusing and getting ready for my interview, I'm vacuuming up glass and stuff just so I can make it there on time. So I get there, I'm totally frazzled. I, I know I did not do a great interview. And uh, how much do you need? And I told them the amount that I needed, and it was, uh, I think it was $1.50 more than what they started at. Well, we don't usually start at that. Well, that's what I need. Well, okay. Anyway, long story short, I end up getting the job, right? Here's what I find out months into the job. Months into the job, here's what I find out. Oh, this is crazy. (laughs) Jesus, there's got to be a better way to tell this story. So the guy who normally did the hiring in this department, you had to fit a certain profile in order for him to hire you, which means you had to be female (laughs) and you had to be good looking. It's just the truth. So he wasn't interested in hiring any men. That's just the way it went down. And this other guy that I gave my resume to was despised in this company. They brought him my resume and said, here, why don't you take a look at this guy? And the boss looked at it, crumbled it up and threw it in the trash and said, if that guy's recommending him, there's no way in heck I'm going to hire him. But his little, the, the women that worked with him were, he was going on vacation and the women that worked with him, they were tired of that were on the same level, you know, supervisor-wise, they were tired of that. So when he left, they literally dug my resume out of the trash and gave me a call and interviewed me and hired me and paid me $1.50 more than everybody else there while he was on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) And I got promoted a couple times, I think, in the time that I was there. So everything I wanted. But here's my point. Trying to work it out here worked against me. It wasn't getting it to the right person and what I know and who I know and all this stuff I thought I had to do out here to make it work. It was simply what I was doing on a spiritual level that was causing everything to align to work out for me, to open up an outcome that I didn't even know about a job I didn't even know existed. Does that make sense? So I'm not, I'm not preaching theory to you. That was 22 years ago. Stuff works if you work it. It's like they tell you in AA. All right, I'm done. <laughs>